Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. So there isn't really a set roadmap for every forensic accounting matter. It's more of knowing the principles and having those building blocks to where you can apply that to any situation you see and get through it. Hello everyone, I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Rubik Yerzarian, Forensic Accounting and Litigation Support Principal with Briggs and Veselka in Houston, Texas. We were recording one of our multi-guest episodes recently when Rubik's name came up actually. And I've been wanting to do another episode that touched on forensics and data analytics, and that led to being referred to Rubik. As you're going to hear, Rubik has been working in the forensic area for over 10 years now, which is something that he basically targeted while still in college, believe it or not, which in turn makes this episode particularly beneficial. If you have an interest in the areas of forensic accounting, litigation support, or working in a data analytics-driven area of accounting, make sure you listen to all the insight that Rubik shares about the skills that are necessary to be successful in those fields, as well as how he broke into that field very early on in his own career. This one really has a lot of value. And if you do find this episode has been valuable to you, please check us out online as well. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all kinds of audio and written accounting career-focused materials, books, blogs, other podcasts, and a few other tools that we're working on as well. Once again, that website is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Rubik Yerazarian, Forensic Accounting and Litigation Support Principal with Briggs Veselka in Houston, Texas. Well, hello, Rubik. Thanks for making the time for us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. No problem. Well, for our audience, we have Rubik Yerazarian with Briggs and Veselka in Houston, Texas on the line with us today. And I was actually recording a different episode recently when the guest offered to refer me to some other professionals, one of which was Rubik. And we'll get into this later in the podcast, of course, but Rubik has been working in forensic accounting and data analytics for several years now. And we've only done two or three episodes on forensics, and we've only actually had one episode where we discuss data analytics. So, Rubik, I really appreciate you making the time for us to do this today. Thank you very much. Before we get into all that, I want to make sure that the audience gets an idea of how you got started so they understand how you got to where you are today. What initially led you to pursue accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, I think in part it was genetic. My grandfather was an accountant, my aunt was an accountant, and my mom was a bookkeeper for over 25 years. So that played a role, I think. But more so growing up, you know, I was always kind of enamored with money, not really spending it, but, you know, you'd get money for your birthdays, you'd get a check or you'd get, you know, a $5 bill. And, you know, I always knew how much money I had. 
and I'd put it in my wallet and stick it in my dresser drawer in my room. And it wasn't really spending the money, but it was just getting it and knowing I have this much money in my wallet. You know, I'm such an adult as an eight-year-old. But as I got older, then it also became my responsibility to count and roll all the change in our family piggy bank. So just kind of that being able to handle that family money, which to me was a lot of money. Sometimes it would be, you know, over a hundred or almost $200 in there if we got a lot of quarters, but it was a sense of accomplishment for me, separating out all those coins, counting them out, rolling them up, putting the account numbers on each of the coin wrappers. Then at the end of the day, telling my mom how much money there was there. So with all that counting and all, I kind of got good at numbers and math in school as well. So I was, you know, always pretty good at math. One of my better subjects you know, we did certain speed math contests in school. So I was always pretty quick at adding stuff up. But once I got to pre-cal in my junior year, I realized I wasn't really good at math, but I was just good at algebra. So my senior year, when I was picking my courses, I saw that accounting was offered. And I figured it'd be a good idea since now I was just learning I was not good at math and I should not major in math in college. So I took it as a sign and went on a tangent from math to accounting. I also like puns and really corny dad jokes, if y'all didn't catch that. So I took an accounting class. My accounting teacher actually was a former CPA who started as a big five auditor, then went to industry and eventually decided to pursue education. So when I had his class, it was his first year teaching accounting. And he was also a staff liaison for one of our business organizations called Future Business Leaders of America. So in that organization, I competed in their accounting competition, and I also was a UIL accounting competitor my senior year. So I had a lot of accounting exposure in high school, which kind of resulted after that realization that I'm not good at math my junior year. So fortunately, all those opportunities were there my senior year. So it really made a lot of sense after I graduated and went to college that, you know, I think I should probably major in accounting. It seems to be going pretty well for me right now. Interesting. There's a lot of similarities in there between my own path, actually. That's intriguing. You know, if we can figure out how to identify that gene, by the way, that exists in your family, I know people that (laughs) that would be interested in (laughs) creating some more accountants. Beautiful, Mm -hmm. beautiful. So what was your first job like out of college? Or did you do an internship kind of route? or, Or how did you get started in your career? My first accounting job was... I was an audit intern at KPMG. And so going into accounting, everyone would say either, oh, you should do audit or, oh, you should do tax. And in my mind, I said, well, people were telling me I should do audit, so I guess I'm going to do audit. I had met folks from KPMG on campus and, and other big four firms as well, but eventually went with KPMG because I had also met some of their forensic accounting folks. So in my mind, I said, hey, let me get in with this company. I know they have a forensic accounting department. And from what I've heard about it so far, it sounds really exciting. And I think I'd like it more than this audit and tax stuff. So I got an audit internship and through that internship was able to get a rotation with the forensic group. And fortunately, that all worked out that way because I was then able to start full-time in their forensic group. Andrew, I didn't realize that your forensic background went that far back. I was thinking it was just recent. Interesting. Okay. Was it very competitive at the time to, to Not, get into that group or no? Well, to get into KPMG, yes, but to get into forensic, it was kind of one of those situations where they didn't really post any jobs. So it wasn't really a situation where I was trying to apply for a specific forensic position. But what happened was 
So beginning as early as my sophomore year in college at the University of Houston, some KPMG forensic accountants had come and spoke to my accounting information system class. I don't even remember what they were really talking about, but I just knew from listening to some of the examples they gave that I wanted to do forensic accounting. So I made it a goal to keep in touch with them. But then also anytime anyone from KPMG ever came to campus, you know, I was going to, you know, go introduce myself and say, oh, I've met so-and-so from your forensic group and just kind of keep planting that seed. So from my sophomore year onward. So when I was eventually ready to actually apply for internships and speak to the recruiter about their actual internship opportunities, they'd already seen me plenty. You know, enough people at KPMG knew who I was and knew, hey, there was this kid who kept harassing us about forensic stuff and he seems to know these forensic people. And hopefully they went to the office and talked to the forensic people and they said, yeah, we talked to him and he sent us some email. So seems like a decent kid. So then eventually the recruiter told me, well, hey, you know, we don't have a specific forensic position, but just apply for audit and we'll try to get you a rotation. So it was kind of like a, about a year and a half process of networking and trying to put myself in the best position possible. So if I ask for a forensic position, they're more likely to consider it rather than just flat out turning me down or saying, we have no idea who you are. Why should we give you this? Because we don't give this to anyone. Interesting. It sounds like you walked the line really well between being you know, proactive about trying to get what you were you know, wanting to target and not being a pest, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. So I'm glad I didn't cross that line. Otherwise, I may not be here today. <laughs> there you go. So how long were you at KPMG? And a second part of the question, you know, since you were at one of the big four, is there anything specific that you can pinpoint that was different for you in starting at the big four or any specific benefit you feel like you received from your time? Yeah. So I was at KPMG for about a little over two and a half years. And even now when I talk to students, you know, if I go to campuses and talk to students or talk to other young professionals, I tell them, you know, it's never going to hurt you to have big four experience. You know, for me, it was a no brainer because those were the only firms at the time that were offering forensic accounting, but no one's ever going to look at your resume and say, oh, you have, you know, two years of big four experience. No, thank you. So it was certainly a good start for me. One of the best things that I got out of it was that it really opened the door to the entire realm of forensic accounting. So being a global firm, if I wanted to work on some proactive compliance type of forensic accounting work or anti-fraud waste and abuse, or if I want to go in in-depth fraud investigations for big corporations of public companies or litigation support. So this was you know, Big Four was the best place for me at the time to get all of that experience in big companies and dealing with big problems. So it was really great for me to kind of get that wide range of forensic accounting experience. So then when I was ready to make my next move, I'd have a better idea of what I liked and what I didn't like. So then I could narrow my focus into one of the niche areas of forensic accounting. Okay. Well, take us through the time from, you know, between KPMG and what you're doing now. Let's walk through that. I mean, what were some of those significant you know, points in your career and what were some mm-hmm. of those moves like? So I like to tell people that my career progression has been kind of like Goldilocks. So the first firm I was at was too big in big four. <laughs> and the second one, I went to a boutique firm and it was too small. And now I'm in a middle market firm that's just right. So my career has spanned the various firm sizes. So it has been great kind of experiencing that. So when I left KPMG, I found an opportunity at a boutique Houston-based forensic accounting firm. So it was, I think when I joined, it was 
six employees. It was always between four and eight employees when I was there. And when I left, it was almost a complete opposite of, okay, you're at KPMG, which is a global name brand. And now you're at this boutique accounting firm and all your friends are telling you, this is a horrible idea. We've never heard of this place. And it was a risk. But for me, I saw it as an opportunity to really narrow my focus on the forensic accounting, the litigation support aspect of forensic accounting, which is what this firm specialized in. Um, so also being at that small firm, you know, there was really no room to hide. At KPMG, if I was on vacation, they could pull a staff from the Dallas office or, you know, the DC office. If something big came up, they can fly him into wherever the client was and, you know, help meet that need. But at a boutique firm, you know, it was, you're it. So there's no hiding. But as a result, I got a ton of experience. So I was there for four and a half years, worked on a ton of big litigation cases, got a lot of experience actually being in either, you know, attending some of these depositions or trials where you can actually see that end product of, oh, okay, so beyond just doing the work on the computer or at my desk, here's how it actually gets used at the end of the day in the courtroom. And that was really great experience for me. So I was there for about four and a half years and eventually decided, you know, I really want to testify. So in the litigation support aspect of forensic accounting, we're hired to be an accounting expert witness. So when companies sue each other or individuals sue each other, we like to deal with companies suing each other because companies have more money most of the time. And so when a company sues another company, they'll each hire attorneys, but then attorneys have to hire forensic accountants to tell them, well, how much should I sue for? So that's where we come in to be their accounting expert witness. And after my experience at KPMG and after four and a half years at the boutique firm, I thought, you know, I've done this long enough to where I feel like I've got a good handle on this. I'm ready to be the expert and not just support the expert. So I had met some folks from Briggs and Vizelka at a networking event who were actually in our tax group. And, you know, we were just chit-chatting. I said I did forensic accounting and they had mentioned that they knew that, oh, Briggs has a forensic accounting group. And, you know, I just kind of logged that in the back of my mind. And a couple months later, you know, when something happened at work and I said, you know, let me reach back out to these Briggs people and just touch base with them. And I contacted and said, hey, you know, just wanted to check in. Do you all have any postings, by the way, or do you have a need in your forensic group? And it kind of went from there. My resume got passed along. And, you know, within a, a week, I think I had done all the interviews and had an offer and was ready to make my next move. There you go. Now, how long have you been at uh, Briggs and Baselka now? Just over three years. Three years. Okay. Okay. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you with students in mind in you know, professionals just starting their career. Can you differentiate a little bit for us the difference between forensic accounting and litigation support and, and I guess, standard audit, if you will? I don't know if there is standard audit, but I, I think you <laughs> understand what I mean. <laughs> yeah, sure. With forensic accounting, forensic is a broader category. So forensic means suitable for a court of law. So it's any type of work that could end up in court. And there's two main buckets to forensic. There's the proactive forensic work and the reactive. So on the proactive stuff, it could be going in and assessing a corporation's control. So similar to say what internal audit would do, but more specific to fraud. And so a lot of times a company could come and say, hey, you know, we want to get, we want you to look at our 
controls, you know, take a look, see if you find any fraud, which is kind of tough because, well, you know, nothing has happened. You're not telling me, hey, this event occurred and see how much money was stolen as a result of it. You're saying, why don't you take a look and see if you find anything? So it's kind of a more internal audit-based approach, but specifically with fraud in mind of how could someone steal money from this company? So in addition, there's other proactive type of engagements. One that we did a lot at KPMG was anti-fraud waste and abuse. So for example, in Houston, Hurricane Harvey hit last year. And so as a result, there's a lot of federal funds coming into the city. So what big four accounting firms, at least when I was there, it was primarily big four accounting firms doing it. So they would help make sure that, okay, well, when this money's coming in, you know, everyone needs money immediately. People are lining up to say, hey, I need money. My business is down or my home is destroyed. Give me money, cut me a check. But we're trying to help prevent any fraud, waste, and abuse in that process. Because for everyone that actually legitimately needs money, there's people who are trying to take advantage of the system and who are trying to come in and, you know, stand in line to get a check, but really weren't damaged. So on the other hand, there's the reactive forensic accounting where we're essentially putting out a fire. So on the proactive stuff, we're, you know, putting the smoke detector in and taking a look and seeing if it's going off at all. But on the reactive stuff, there's a full-on fire and we're putting out the fire and trying to identify the cause of the fire. So then the client can realize the extent of the damage and, and you know, what caused it. So that's when we get more into the fraud situation. If it is, for example, a misappropriation from a company and the examples of litigation support where it's not necessarily a fraud, but it's still a company is damaged. So in both situations on the reactive forensic accounting, you're out of pocket. So you've been harmed and you need to figure out, well, what, would, what dollar amount would make me whole? What is the amount of my damage? And that's where we come in as the forensic accountant in those reactive jobs to help look at everything and say, hey, you were harmed by this much because of this person's actions. And this is about how much you need to make yourself whole to put you back in a position should this person have not done these acts against you. Okay. Okay. So what is your position exactly now with Bridgeland Baselka? And tell us you know, how you spend your time. What does a typical day really look like? You know, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, podcasts for one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So I'm a principal in our forensic valuation and litigation support group and also head our data analytics practice here and so it can kind of vary depending on our caseload. So unlike audit and tax, we don't have a set busy season. So our busy season is when a client says, hey, can you help us? By the way, here's the deadline. And that deadline is mandated typically by the court. In situations of fraud, that deadline is as soon as possible because if someone has money being stolen from them, they want to figure it out ASAP. But with a litigation support you know, we look and say, okay, well, when is the deadline? When do you need our report by? When is trial? So we have those major milestones that we're kind of working off. So if we're coming up on any, if a new case is starting up, you know, we're planning out our process, trying to help the attorneys figure out what documents they need to request. So really explaining all that accounting to them to say, okay, go ask for a general ledger, profit and loss statements, bank statements, and walking through the actual information we would need to conduct our analysis. 
if we already have all that, then we could be actually doing the analysis. So a lot of Microsoft Excel and other data analytics tools we use, such as IDEA. Sometimes we use Tableau as well if we're trying to make it look pretty and present our data and findings. But typically, a lot of Microsoft Excel would just kind of churning through the data and analyzing it. So then we could eventually turn it into some kind of report. And that report is what would eventually be submitted to the court that will contain all our opinions that will say, this is how much the plaintiff was harmed by the defendant. And here's all of our justification and reasons for how we came up to this damage amount. So if we're actually working on, for a lot of my time, it's working on the actual cases. And for the rest of it, you know, we're pretty, you know, I'm fortunate being at Briggs & Vizelka, they're very involved with the Houston CPA Society and the TSCPA. So they encourage our involvement with those accounting organizations. In forensic accounting, a lot of our work comes from law firms and attorneys. So actually later today, I'm going to be going to a law firm and assisting with the CLE presentation that some of our other folks are going to be teaching. So it really varies between doing the actual analysis on the actual cases. And then there's the whole business development side, which for us revolves mostly around lawyers and networking with law firms. Do you work with law enforcement much directly or is that mostly handled by the the law firms you're working with? Sometimes. So in one instance, one of my favorite cases I got to work on Typically, we pursue the civil litigation cases. So a company hires the lawyer and the lawyer hires us to help with their civil case. But sometimes if a fraud is egregious enough or if it violates any federal regulations, then the FBI could get involved. So in one instance, the FBI decided on the same matter to pursue criminal charges. And in that case, I was able to really work hand in hand with the FBI agent because There was no need for them to have to duplicate efforts. We were doing the work on the civil side, and the same analysis could be used for the criminal side. So I got to go with the FBI agent on some of his meetings in interviews that he did with certain suspects, explain a lot of the accounting side to him, because I think this FBI agent was a history major, if I remember correctly. (laughs) And when he was meeting with the uh, assistant U.S. attorney, I would go with him to kind of explain all the detail on the accounting side to where the U.S. attorney would know, okay, sounds like these guys got the number side figured out so they could check that box in their mind when they decide whether or not to pursue the criminal charges. Okay. Okay. I'm curious, what do you enjoy the most about what you do? I really enjoy the fact that I'm helping solve someone's problem. So when someone comes to us in a forensic accounting situation, they have a problem and we're helping them fix it. And, you know, people, when I go to networking events sometimes and people ask, what do you do? I say forensic accounting, you know, sometimes they say, oh, what's that? There's always a few folks who say, oh, you know, they have that look like I've had to deal with you guys before, which is unfortunate. (laughs) I always tell people, I hope you never have to deal with me because that means, you know, you're in some kind of situation where, you know, you ran into some kind of problem and you're going to end up in court. But it's really fulfilling to me knowing that, you know, we're helping guide clients through a difficult time. And, you know, we really are the experts in this field. We do it all the time. But, businesses don't always deal with fraud or litigation matters. So we're able to really give some of that comfort to the client and explaining the process to them and explaining what we're doing and give them that assurance that, hey, we're going to help you get through this. And then once it's done, you see that relief on their face and you know that you really help them get through that difficult time. 
Is there a personality type you think that does well in forensic accounting? I, the reason I ask that is I'm picturing someone that enjoys catching someone. You know, <laughs> they, they enjoy <laughs> you know, catching the criminal kind of thing. But that's probably just very naive on my part. I mean, have you noticed any particular personality characteristics or traits that make somebody just really good at this? Field? Yeah, I'd say two traits that are really helpful. One is that you really need to be kind of a self-starter and go in and just dig in and be able to figure stuff out. So, you know, in tax, for example, you have a tax code you can lean on and say, well, let me see the situation and compare it to the tax code. In audit, you'll have your audit program guide and that says, well, here's what we're going to audit. Here's what we're going to do. But in forensic, you kind of get thrown into a situation where you say, okay, this company's suing that company. Here's the facts. Here's what we have so far. And you just got to kind of figure it out. So, you know, you can get help along the way and request additional information and see what other facts are present in the case and get a help from other experts if you need. But you really just having that sense of being able to be a self-starter and taking a case from A to Z and just figuring it out. Because sometimes, you know, you're a lot of times the one with the most knowledge. If you're working with attorneys, they're hiring you to be their expert. So you're the expert. So you need to, you need to figure it out. And sometimes, and most of the time, the way you do it on one case is going to have different variables than what you do on another case. So there isn't really a set roadmap for every forensic accounting matter. It's more of knowing the principles and having those building blocks to where you can apply that to any situation you see and get through it. The other trait is just communication. So when we deal with accounting, if if I'm talking to accountants, I can say debit credit, you know, any accounting term, and I know they'll get it, but I'm talking to attorneys, I'm talking to a judge, to a jury. I don't know who's going to be on that jury, and that judge and those attorneys most likely didn't minor in business. Sometimes they did, which is nice, but most of the time, you know, they don't really know a lot about accounting. So you have to be able to take everything, take all those financial records, analyze them, and spit something out in a way where anyone can understand it. Because you don't know who's going to be on the jury. You don't know how much about business or accounting your audience is going to know. So that's really a big part of it. One story I always remember when I was getting ready, helping an attorney prep for a trial, the attorney showed me a piece of paper and said, hey, we got this from the opposing side. And she gave me a document that it was trial balance. So she looked at it and said, trial balance, what does that even mean, huh? <laughs> And in her mind, she looked at it and saw a trial. This relates to trial. In my mind, I said, this is just a trial balance. This person is insane. So it's, it's things like that that you realize when you're going through financial records with someone who's not an accountant that, okay, I really need to break this down to basics. And I might need to explain what a trial balance is to someone, but you, know, you need to do it in a way to not speak down to them. You're speaking to communicate it on the same level as your audience. I had to hit the mute button because I started laughing too much when you said that. <laughs> I will never look at a trial balance those words the same again. That that is funny. That yeah, never occurred see, to me. When you see trial balance, think litigation support. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. Okay. Gosh, that got me off track now. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I suspect we talk about the, for lack of a better word, glamorous parts of the job. And I suspect it's a lot like, you know, TV when you hear about it from the outside. You watch a show like CSI, and, you know, you see them driving around town in these nice, you know, Hummers and stuff like that and all the exciting mm-hmm. parts and you don't see the back office. And I'm picturing there may be days like where you have boxes and boxes of data or <laughs> you know hard drives and hard drives of data that is it important to be able to sit down and just focus on going through files for a week and <laughs> you know that kind of thing as well the yeah Okay. Well, and sometimes it is hard drives. Hopefully, most of the time it's hard drives to where you have digital information, but sometimes it is paper. So early this year, I was working on a fraud matter and it was all paper. So I had 15, and they weren't bankers boxes, they were bigger than bankers boxes, but 15 giant boxes in my office, which isn't that big. My office isn't that big, the boxes were. And people would walk by, which my office is usually pretty empty, but then they'd walk by and see this mess of boxes in the doorway, just kind of blocking my path. And they'd stop and look and say, whoa, that doesn't look fun. And this would go on. Anytime someone would walk by, it's just that they'd stop and see it. And we try to pride ourselves on being a mostly paperless firm. So something like, you know, 15 giant boxes of paper stick out, but sometimes that's what we get, you know? So that's all you have to work off of in a fraud matter. If someone says something's going on, here's everything we have. We don't digitize this stuff, or we don't have all this stuff recorded in detail spreadsheets or financial accounting software or anything. This is it. So then we have to work with that. Now that affects how we budget our jobs and we have to be honest with the client and say, well, if you have it digitally, we can do it a lot quicker, but I'm going to be going through paper and it's going to take me a while to get through all this stuff. So, but that definitely happens. Now, if we do get hard drives, that can be easier because we can use our, you know, we have a digital forensics team and they can search the hard drives for certain keywords, pull certain types of documents for us. So we're not just starting from scratch saying, well, let me click through my documents and see everything that's on this thing. But then at some point we still have to review the files. So whether it's emails, actual Word documents or PDFs or spreadsheet data, and with spreadsheets and data particularly, you know, you, to really analyze it from an accountant's perspective, the really non-glamorous part, which I've done a lot and everyone has to do it in forensic accounting, is getting everything in a spreadsheet. So whether it's combining other spreadsheets or sometimes it is paper records that you're keying in and there's no better way, you can try to OCR it, but you still have to make sure everything scanned in properly and copied over correctly. But sometimes those paper records we get, they've been sitting in storage for five years and those fives start to look like eights or vice versa. And you really have to go in and validate your data before you can start to do any real analysis on it. That's probably the most unglamorous part of it, just kind of getting numbers in spreadsheets, but it's really an essential part in order to do our analysis. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the aging of the data, the physical aging of the data. That's interesting. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So we touched a little bit on the soft skills, if you will, that are beneficial in your field. If I'm a junior or senior in college, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, that sounds fun. That sounds interesting. I'd like to get into this field. From the hard skills perspective, is there anything you think that I could do to make myself more attractive? 
to a forensic accounting principal to hire me. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things, since a lot of you know entry-level positions, you're going to be handling that data and more likely handling some of those unglamorous tasks. If someone has that computer knowledge of Microsoft Excel or any other data processing type tools, that's always a plus. So schools now more and more are offering some kind of, whether it's through a course or it's just like an extra class where they have someone come and teach Excel on campus. I'm seeing that a lot more. And I'm also seeing certain types of certificate programs or certain courses structured around accounting programs where schools are realizing that, hey, data analytics is something that is really prevalent nowadays. So maybe we need to get our accountants to take some of these management information systems classes or some of these programming classes or offer some kind of base level programming class to where if they decide to go that route, they've at least seen it and can get those building blocks in place. For me, Excel was something that I never really learned in college, but ever since my first job, I always was working with Microsoft Excel and just kind of kept building on that Excel skill set every you know week of my career. There was always something new that I was learning, something that I had to Google, how do I do this in Excel? And was able to kind of add that into my list of Excel skills in my head. But to the extent that any students can start gaining some of that experience, you know, that can only help you. And that will be very attractive to forensic accountants because there's going to be situations where we say, okay, here's what we got. We need to clean up the data, make sure it all ties out, then we can start analyzing it. So if someone can actually take that and just take the data and make that happen without, you know, someone having to say, and here's the 50 steps you might have to take to do it, that's definitely a very great trait that we'd look for. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't plan to ask you this. So, you know, there may not be an answer here. I'm fishing a little bit, but I was thinking about some of the other software systems you named earlier, Idea, mm-hmm. Tableau, and thinking back to some of the other podcasts we had done. I think, you know, SQL was mentioned. If a university was going to add something to their curriculum in the area of software, is there anything you think would be particularly beneficial, at least for your Outside of the Excel, of course, yeah, you know, for your field? Yeah, I think it can't hurt to have some of that base knowledge of SQL or Python is something that's a programming language that's used a lot as well in data analytics. So those are two of them that I am seeing more and more because some of them are introduced in even the management information systems classes. Or I think some schools might have some more intensive tracks where then you might even get a computer science minor, for example, and really get more involved in some of those specific programming classes. Wonderful. But on your day-to-day, you're going to be using Excel. In the situations where you're handling large, nasty data sets, having that Python or SQL knowledge can only help you. But if there's one skill set that you're going to really be sharpening, you know, the one you're going to use on a day-to-day basis is going to be Microsoft Excel. Perfect. Okay. Well, we have been on the line for about 40 minutes, and I have three questions I end every podcast with, and I don't want to skip those. So this has been wonderful. Thank you, Rubik. Mm -hmm. Actually, I got a lot more information than I was bargaining for. So thank (laughs) you. Thank you. (laughs) The first of the final three questions usually is the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? So, so far, it's been the first time I actually testified in court. 
So it kind of validated everything I've done so far in my career and all my forensic accounting experience over the past 10 plus years. So when I was actually sitting in court and you know the attorney was asking me questions, I was responding. And afterwards, the opposing attorney cross-examined me and I answered the questions. And once the judge said, you can go, and I walked out, I kind of had that moment of, I just did that. You know, I can do this. So it's, uh, you know, I am an expert. At least these people in the courtroom think I am. So it was really a, a moment for me where I felt like, you know, if it hadn't gone well, then I might be saying, well, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. But it really, it felt like the start of the second half of my career where now instead of just being the forensic accountant who's helping with all this stuff, now it's the beginning of my career as the forensic accounting expert witness. I bet the adrenaline was uh, <laughs> flowing through your veins. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're yeah. sitting outside the courtroom waiting to be called in. That's kind of a, it was a little bit of a nerve wracking time. And, <laughs> you know, being my first time, I was thinking, okay, well, should I just go in early and sit in the back or no, let me sit here so I can review some things on my phone. And, you know, so it was that moment of, you know, okay, well, what should I do? And am I ready? Yes, I'm ready. Let me keep going over things. But at the end of the day, once I realized, oh, okay, I was overprepared in a good way, you know, and I got through it. So it was a really exciting moment for me and a big relieving moment once it was over. Yes. Yeah. Overpreparation is the key in those situations, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, second question, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's what we're really going for. But the more colossal, the better. (laughs) (laughs) So this goes back to my college years when I was actually beginning to interview. So it was my freshman year of college. And, you know, I thought I was, you know, hot stuff. And I got an interview with the large corporation. And I thought, man, they're giving me, you know, I applied and they gave me an interview. And I thought, yeah, I'm a freshman, but, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. So I'm not surprised that they gave me an interview because usually they just gave interviews to juniors and seniors. And so after the interview, I realized I wasn't as prepared. Well, I guess after I got my rejection letter, I realized I wasn't as prepared as I could have been. So I made two really crucial mistakes going into the interview. One, I forgot to wear underwear because I had gone to the, I was commuting to campus from my parents' house and I go to the gym in the mornings on campus. And so I take my bag of clothes, you know, clothes I'm going to change into. And I had worn a swimsuit that day because I was going to go swimming in the morning and then I was going to shower and change. And as I was trying to, you know, after the shower, trying to get dressed ready, got my suit ready, got my undershirt, got my belt, my tie, my socks and everything. I look down and say, ah, I don't have my underwear. So that made it incredibly uncomfortable going into my first interview with a corporation for an accounting internship. Second, when it came time to the end of the interview, when they asked me, well, do you have any questions for us? My response was, nope, I'm good. And the interview just ended there. And I left thinking, man, you know, I nailed it, you know, and then after I got my rejection letter, I went to an interview workshop and I wanted first things that really stuck in my head from it was they said, always have questions ready for to ask the interviewer. So I thought, oh, I really messed that up. And so kind of from that point on, I took that process a lot more seriously and realized, you know, I had a lot to improve on in how I prepared for interviews and portrayed myself to corporations and companies when I was applying for positions. 
You know, and I haven't forgotten to put on my underwear or pack underwear <laughs> since then. <laughs> I thought we'd hit at least 200 episodes before the word underwear was mentioned. Uh, you know, I, but wow, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, you're the first. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> on a serious note, I have to tell you, I did the exact same thing with no questions when I was doing my own campus interviews with EY mm-hmm. back in college. And I tell the students now, I know exactly when I lost that job or when I didn't get that job. It's when I said no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy sat there for two seconds and then he just stood up and said, well, thanks for coming in and shook my hand and it was over. That was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good lesson. Good stories, though, to pass on, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? It's interesting because this piece of advice that I've gotten is actually one that you might not it's a little unusual. So when I was interning at KPMG, I had one of the directors was my mentor, and you know, she told me to always have an exit strategy. And I thought that was a little odd because as an intern in an accounting firm, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get a full-time offer here and I'm going to be partner. I'm going to be here the rest of my life. And here's this person telling me, have an exit strategy. What would you do if you left here? And you know, it was something that I had never thought about, but immediately I started thinking about it. And you know, she asked me on the spot and I said, well, I always wanted to open, I used to always want to open a pizza shop. So I love pizza growing up, always ate pizza. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, that would be fun to open a pizza shop. So I would always have that in mind. And when people would ask me later on in my career, you know, oh, what would you do? What are you going to do after accounting? I say, well, I could go open a pizza shop. I've since changed that to, you know, other things. But, you know, I think when I'm done with accounting, I might like to teach, like, which I think was a good influence from my high school accounting teacher, seeing him progress from, you know, going from being a big five auditor and going the industry route and eventually, you know, seeing what I got from him in the classroom. So I think that's something that I would enjoy doing as a eventual exit strategy. But, you know, in when I talk to students or young professionals now, I, I give them similar advice, but I kind of put it maybe a little harsher, but I say, you know, be selfish. You know, it's your career. It's not your employer's career. And that's kind of the takeaway I got from this piece of advice that I got during my internship. You know, think about what's going to happen if the status quo changes and what your employer is providing you isn't meeting the needs of what you want them to provide. So don't be afraid to, you know, confront them with that and say, hey, you know, I, I liked how things were going here. Then these things changed you know, what are your thoughts on that? Then if you get some feedback that, hey, this is how it's going to be going forward, then you know you have a decision to make. And if you have an exit strategy, it's going to be a lot less shocking for you to make that change. And also if you, you know, don't be afraid to have those discussions with your employer, because then it's less likely that you'll be burning a bridge. You can say, we discussed it and, you know, it's a conversation that we had and you know how I feel about it. And, you know, it's more of a business decision there than an emotional decision. But really having an exit strategy and thinking about your own career is the best piece of advice that I've gotten. That's really insightful. And you're right. It's not something we think about early enough in our career. And yeah, that's really good for our audience. Thank you, Rubik. Mm-hmm. 
Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited our website, please do so. We're going to have the show notes for Rubik's episode, of course, and every other episode previously as well. That website is whereaccountantsgo.com. We have a new career content blog. We have some books and some additional publications on the topic of accounting careers as well. And that's all online for you at our website, www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, thank you very much, Rubik, for joining us today. I really appreciate all the insight and information. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thank you to the audience for joining us as well. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.